Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, this podcast is focused mostly on cetaceans, meaning whales and dolphins, ocean-related topics, and endangered animals. My name is Erica Worth. I'm your host here. I started this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer up in the San Juan Islands in the habitat of the southern resident killer whales. The first two years of this podcast focused specifically on that group of whales. I interviewed a variety of people from various backgrounds in regards to issues with that specific species. So if you're interested in learning about them, go back to our first two years worth of episodes. We are now here in season four and we are expanding a bit. So now we cover all kinds of topics. If you're interested in being on the podcast or you have a topic or a paper that you would like to have covered send us an email or a message on Instagram, something like that. My email is erica at breachingextinction.com. That's Erica with a C and breaching extinction. I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode and we'll just get to it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Deborah Vicari. How are you doing today, Deborah? Hi, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. Um, so tell us who you are, where are you from, um, and how did you get into studying whales? Okay, um, okay, and I'm Deborah, and uh, I come from Italy, and I'm, then I moved to the UK for my PhD. Let's say that I always wanted to be a whale researcher, and I always imagined myself on boat collecting data on whales, uh, but I also found uh, quite difficult to have access to that field. So I just thought uh, I just enrolled and I decided to enroll uh, into a bachelor degree in natural sciences in uh, Sapienza in Rome. And during those years, I just became quite interested in paleontology, which might might look like a, a bit uh, uh, far away from all the monitoring cetaceans and all the studying from marine mammals, but it actually is not. And uh, there was a, um, an episode, especially during those years in the, my, uh, uh, during those years at the bachelor, uh, where I joined paleontological excavation. And there was an episode where I found a mandible of a bear, like a small bear. And that really changed the idea of what, um, what kind of whale researcher I could be and I wanted to be. So let's say that I thought that I could create a, a link between field ecology and functional morphology in marine mammals. So after the uh, experience, uh, decided to graduate in uh, and enroll in uh, and get a master in uh, marine biology. Um, I joined while I was there so many extra activities. Uh, I've been involved in monitoring cetacean on ferries uh, with Academia of Leviatano in Italy. I work in museum collections. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, I, I've also um, decided to do my thesis in uh, Belgium at the Natural History Museum in Belgium, where I firstly studied the uh, 2D morphology of uh, mandible, tooth whales mandible. And uh, then I decided that I really wanted to 
university and that was really uh, the pathway that I wanted to go uh, to become a real uh, scientist. So I enrolled in a Dublin, Dublin English school to get certified as a BTU in uh, English. And then uh, while I was there, I also wrote my project, uh, my PhD project. Uh, so I was doing this dual like job overnight. I was writing the project uh, for uh, my PhD and then applied, uh, um, applied in uh, Liverpool John Wars University in England. And then uh, my project passed, so it was fully funded. And uh, I also got a research grant uh, and they allowed me to collect data in uh, 75 museums across, uh, across Europe. And I've also joined two research fields, one in Iceland and uh, uh, together with the um, Icelandic Orca project uh, and the one in Norway with body will condition project uh, going with my research and then you contact me. <laughs> Amazing. Wow, yeah, you've done quite a lot in um in the last several years. That's amazing. So what is morphology for those who are not so familiar with this field of study? So the morphology is the study of the morpho, which is the, in my case, the shape of the skull. And from uh, the from the skull, we can actually improve our understanding of ecology and evolution. And uh, I don't know if everyone knows about the tooth whales, for example, are quite asymmetrical. So the skull is quite asymmetrical. And that can also give you an information. Uh, obviously, they are asymmetric because they, they evolve the, the, the collocation, but they also, the degree of asymmetry is, uh, is related to the size of the prey that they ingested. So we can actually De detect uh, um, um, an important uh, um, we can detect an important parameter of their ecology and their feeding habits uh, as well um, it is important morphology also because we are can make inferences on fossil specimen and there are um, there are few specimens uh, which are tooth whale specimen that actually known just by few sightings. And I'm not sure if everyone knows the Indo-Pacetus pacificus. And this species uh, is uh, uh, actually, we only know the species uh, of, for few sightings, uh, but we only have three skulls uh, around the world. So, for example, the first species has been collected in Florence, uh, from has been um, has been housed uh, in uh, Florence, the Natural History Museum in Florence, but has been discovered in uh, in Africa. And the second uh, specimen uh, is in uh, Smithsonian collections, uh, and the third one should be in uh, Australia. So it is quite important morphology, for example, we can also detect new species uh, just by looking at, at the skulls in the museum collection. So um, morphology, it, it can give you access to a um, great amount of data, um, especially when the, the species is not that common and uh, we, it is, a, for example, a deep, a deep species. Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I know like one of the facts that we share with, because um, I work on a whale watch boat with our passengers is that we can um, get the age of whales by looking at their morphology um, mm -hmm. and like looking at that little bone that's in their ear. Um, but I didn't realize that there was so much more we could learn from them. So how do you guys get these skulls or um, like other bones from these animals? How do we, sorry? Um, how do you guys get the skulls and the bones from them? Uh, um, so for example, for this paper, um, they, uh, 
Tenarluga uh, specimen has been collected uh, by a researcher from uh, the Greenland uh, um, Institute of Natural uh, Resources. Mm -hmm. And so they just go on, on uh, Greenland and they collect all those skulls. Uh, the skulls have, have been uh, um, previously, um, the specimen have been previously eaten by Inuit uh, communities. So what they do is collect all those skulls uh, and uh, they just integrate that in the collection museums. So you can find you can just go in the museum collections. So they have warehouses uh, and the warehouses are quite huge, and they just contain all this uh, this like huge amount of skulls uh, and skeletons. Uh, and from there you can just extract DNA and stable isotopes uh, and work with morphology like I do. And um, yeah, so specifically from some some of the species are stranded species. Uh, uh, some of them uh, um, are collected from from Inuit community in case of narluga, narwhals and uh, beluga. Wow, that's very interesting. So you just published a paper um, about the skull echomorphological variation of narwhals um, and belugas reveals their phenotype and hybrids. So let's dive into this study. So tell us a little bit about the study, the methods that you used, what you found. Okay, so um, I'll try to summarize as best as I can the story of the Narluga because it's a quite exciting story behind. Um, uh, as, I saw, as I told you previously, has been found by researcher from the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources. The first paper on this specimen, it goes back to 1993. And uh, um, they uh, talked with an Inuit uh, hunter and they said that the specimen was caught in uh, May 1986-87. And uh, actually he, he kind of described the specimen uh, like a combination of the two parental species of, uh, of a mix of an Arluga, uh, of a mix, a mix of a beluga and narwhal. And so he showed the, like a narwhal tail and a beluga pectoral fins. He, and he also had like, this gray coloration, which was a, a typical for his size. And so um, then, uh, obviously, they uh, in 1993 they didn't have or they didn't develop all the uh, molecular techniques uh, that uh, that we have uh, nowadays uh, to identify the parental species. So we actually had to wait in the 2019 to uh, confirm the identity of the hybrid. So we got another beautiful paper for, um, from um, Scobri in the Tal 2019. And uh, they, they are the first one to actually confirm the identity of the hybrid, which was a mix uh, between a narwhal and a, narwhal and a beluga whale. Um, after that, I apply for uh, for a, uh, for a grant to go in the museum collections. So, for example, I apply for uh, synthesis. I'm not sure if all the people that know synthesis can be quite useful for them to know, maybe. Um, and this is a grant that allows scientists to undertake uh, short visits and museum collections, uh, natural history museum collections. And uh, I apply for Denmark because I wanted to uh, study um, the morphology and uh, narwhals and beluga whales. Uh, I didn't know anything about the, uh, this, this beautiful specimen and that was 2017. So it was before the, um, the actual paper from Scovering the Tablet 2019. So they, I've been contacted by them. Uh, they told me that I, 
um, um, I obtained the, the grant to study the, 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 monodontida, the Monodontidae and the Morten Olsen, uh, which is a, a researcher there. And he told me that he wanted me to analyze the skull shape of the of this Narluga. So then we had a meeting with my supervisors. We decided which analysis to run and to detect uh, which kind of uh, dominant phenotype he had. And that was a, then, um, it was then integrated in my PhD thesis. Um, so I collected the data. Uh, I work um, specifically with 3D, 3D methods. So I, um, when I was there, I collected data with Microscribe. Um, I'm not sure people are familiar with them, but Microscribe um, is um, a tool that records uh, X, Y, and Z coordinates, and uh, it consists in a base. So the base has a center, which is 0, 0, 0, uh, which obviously refers to the coordinates uh, X, Y, and Z. Um, it consists uh, so then in a vertical structure and that vertical structure holds an arm and this arm uh, ends with a, an electronic pen. All the structure, which is called microscribe, is then connected to a pedal and then is connected to the laptop through the, <clears throat> through the, uh, the software. Um, <clears throat> and um, um, it is quite uh, simple to use. So, for example, um, sorry about that. You're fine. Just getting a little sip of water. <laughs> Take your time, no worries. <clears throat> so, it is quite easy to use. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you want to measure, let's say, uh, a very um, basic object, right? let's say you, you want to measure your textbook. So uh, you can take the electronic arm and you can position the pen on the first corner and then you can check you can click on the pen, you can press the pedal and the pedal is gonna exactly record the coordinates where you pointed the pen. So you're gonna you end up with three numbers and the three numbers are the three numbers of the three axes, so X, Y, and Z. And then obviously you take another point. So the distance between these two points, which we can call landmarks, is actually a distance, so it's a measurement. Um, after that, uh, you can collect like a huge amount of landmarks uh, on, on top of the skull. So you can, uh, you, you have a huge amount of uh, variables that then you um, take, uh, um, you import those, uh, um, those in your software and you can actually visualize these 3D measurements, these three landmarks uh, on, on your laptop. And, and then you can start analyzing your data depending on your research question. Um, there are so many different ways to study 3D models uh, for this paper. For example, I use the microscribe for others. I use the photogrammetry. Photogrammetry I, um, is more, um, you take photos and uh, the object uh, and, um, and then you, you merge all these pictures uh, through a software and then you have the actual 3D models with the texture. And uh, every day, every, um, each 3D technique has pros and cons. So depending on the size of your specimen maybe and um, which kind of study you want to do, you're gonna decide if you want the uh, one techniques instead of another. Um, um, then, so I collected all these uh, measurements uh, and then I imported them and we wanted to see if the, uh, which, which was the dominant phenotype of this, uh, this Narluga. 
so what we did, uh, um, so we just applied the geometric morphometrics uh, methods uh, and uh, where um, we studied the, um, is a way to study multivariate uh, uh, measurements uh, and uh, we end up, uh, um, um, we find out um, um, the credit, it was a, a really um, a mismatch uh, in, in his skull, for example. Um, the, it was a the cranium. It was a more like a beluga-like cranium, and the mandible was a narrow-like uh, um, uh, mandible, and so it was a really a mix uh, of uh, phenotype. So the dominant phenotype for the cranium was the beluga, while the deep dominant phenotype for the mandible it was the narrow, and that was quite exciting to know. And uh, we find out obviously we show we we found out that and also the. Um, uh, we saw that the size exceed uh, um, the size uh, of beluga, and it was more similar to larger narrow also, and that's another important thing. Um, I, during the, my data collection in uh, Denmark, I've also found out uh, um, another specimen that looked quite weird, uh, and, and we call it a putative hybrid. And then obviously it was um, a mislabeled uh, specimen, but it was a quite tricky one because it looked completely unarable um, to me, um, but it had uh, um, erupted the teeth and they don't know usually, um, so, and especially male narwhals, they have tusks, uh, they don't have teeth on, uh, uh, on, the, on the cranium. So that was quite exciting. And so we saw that uh, he had two erupted teeth on each side uh, and also testify um, by extracting the stable isotopes uh, on his skull. We found out there was a bottom feeder. So probably uh, the presence of teeth really helped in, uh, um, in his like, feeding habits. Wow, that is so incredible. Um, I'm just like processing all of the information that you just provided. That's like, that must have been so exciting to realize that you guys had like discovered so much about the species and I, that they were able to, you know, or, or, that there is a hybrid of a beluga and a narwhal. Um, are belugas typically bottom feeders or narwhals typically bottom feeders or do you think it was just like this hybrid that was doing that no it was mostly the, the hybrid uh, they the stable isotopes have been analyzed in scoring the tal 2019 and the um, in the hybrid it looks more bottom uh, to be more a bottom feeder compared to uh, to his parental uh, species. Uh, so probably we can speculate that uh, the presence of teeth uh, might help uh, him uh, in uh, like grasping the bottom. That can be, I mean, just a speculation. And uh, the same for them is labeled uh, narwhal with erupted teeth. Uh, they're probably the teeth. Um, they really help in uh, his bottom feeding strategy. For sure. So um belugas and narwhals are are fairly social creatures if i'm not mistaken so have we seen a live hybrid animal and what is that like will it stay with like family groups like do you like know anything about the social structure of the animal and how uh, an animal like that would integrate into you know whale societies mm -hmm. then um so we know that 
hybridization is possible, but we don't actually know if uh, uh, it was fertile species. So we don't actually know how they hybrid, if there are like hybrids uh, uh, at the moment uh, present in some of the groups. Uh, what I can tell you is that there was a uh, nice um, uh, blog in the Smithsonian and they, um, um, and there is a, there was a photo, uh, quite popular photo where they saw a male narwhal living with a group of belugas and uh, they were just following um, um, following them with drone uh, with drone um, uh, technology so we probably if we don't know now we probably will know in the future but um, at the moment we don't really know which frequency um, we had the I mean the, the hybrid frequency in the group so we don't actually know that that's really interesting no that I mean that makes sense I feel like those animals are not super easy to access anyways, um, as far as trying to study them. Um, okay. So you guys have figured, um, this out as far as the hybrid goes, do you guys have any like studies planned in the future? Obviously I know it's hard cause you it's, you can't just like locate a hybrid animal. Um, but are there any other studies that you intend to do in the future in regard to hybrid species? Um, not with the hybrid species. Uh, we really like to study the koja species, uh, which are the pygmy sperm whales, uh, and uh, there is the koja sima that is undergoing an ecological speciation. So um, that could be quite useful and um, quite interesting. But um, at the moment, I'm not planning anything on hybrids. The um, the funny thing is that when this paper was out, uh, I had many people contacting me uh, with videos from Arctic uh, and uh, saying that probably that one uh, might be asking me if that could be like an hybrid or or not uh, and uh, I actually I don't really have an answer for it. Interesting I mean that's fair yeah if you don't know what it would look like and you know a lot of this information you can only get from the skull mm -hmm. um that's fascinating. So why is studying this important? Why is morphological data like essential for us understanding cetaceans? Well, um, uh, well, uh, it is important, uh, um, especially the study of allometry, for example, um, you can um, the allometry with allometry, I mean, all the, uh, the description of the of how the shape uh, uh, in my case, the shape of the skull, but it can be the body parts in general, how they change it, how they change uh, related with size. So, for example, if you put all this information together, you can actually study evolutional trajectories, uh, so you can understand more about their ecology um, and uh, uh, how um, the allometry can have impact uh, on the species ecology's evolution. So, for example, um, uh, yeah, for example, we, uh, in the paper, um, the one that we published in figure uh, four, you can see um, um, that figure that's called the regression. So that's actually the allometry, which is the, the change of the skull related with their size. 
and you can see that you got two different lines and those lines are parallel one is for the beluga and the other one is for narwhals so you can actually see that there are two different species which one is on the top and the other one is on is, um, um, is below the other one and you can actually get information by looking at the intercept at the slope and also where the intercept begins so that's another study that is actually quite doable with the morphology and with skull and uh, and the specimen collection uh, and specimen in museums um, uh, collection. Very cool. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the figures right now. That's amazing. Um, very cool. So, um, sorry, I just I was just looking at something and then my internet connection got weird for a second. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Um, so what sort of studies can we look forward to seeing from you in the future? Obviously, you want to do like the pygmy sperm whale. Um, do you have anything else planned? I mean, obviously, you're doing a lot. I'm just so fascinated <laughs> by like all of this. I haven't really studied morphology at all. Like I've mm -hmm. read a lot about like acoustics and behavior, but this is something new to me. So I just find it so interesting. Well, everything that, that you uh, collect in the in the I mean on the field uh, during the, the research field, uh, well while you're doing like monitoring studies, and you can actually integrate those data in, uh, um, for example, in how uh, uh, all those parameters are related to with skull morphology, and for example, the way that they dive. So there are species that they um, they they dive like horizontally and vertically. Sorry. And so, for example, how they position the head, that, that can also be useful for future research. And there are there is so much to do, especially because most of the research, uh, the past research, uh, um, is focused mostly on uh, uh, very small specimens. So because obviously they are quite easy to manipulate and to handle. Uh, so you have loads of papers on common dolphins, loads of paper on uh, Stenella, and uh, not so many papers on big uh, marine mammals uh, because obviously. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes, I mean, loads of uh, um, effort, I mean, to, to manipulate, to handle them. Uh, and um, yeah, so probably in the future, um, we need more research on uh, uh, big, big marine mammals, big, uh, uh, big whales in general. Absolutely. Amazing. Um, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, let me think. Um, do you mean in my, with my research in general or? With your research in general. And then also a question I always ask people too is uh, what can you uh, learn from the whales? Okay. <laughs> That's a tricky one. Um, well, um, okay. So I think I can answer you in two different ways. So what I directly learn from whales. So what I actually learn, uh, which is linked to their culture or their features, uh, and, and the other part is maybe how, um, what I learned by studying them. So um, with meaning the process, in that process, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so um, directly from Wales, uh, I, um, well, I learned that um, we need to remember our roots. So um, our pasta, so those are animals that they actually uh, readapted uh, um, to the ocean. So they're completely, um, their level of adaptation is quite high. 
so that's quite important. That's why something that I also apply in my, uh, um, something that I apply in my, um, I mean, that, that I carry into my day. Um, and also it is important um, um, that it is important the communication in general. Uh, for example, tooth whales, uh, they, um, they uh, develop the echolocation, which is a different way to get information from the environment uh, and uh, communicate. Uh, and uh, it is important for, for, for the growth uh, in general uh, for everyone. <laughs> so it's not just about will. Um, and uh, also, yeah, remember your roots because have, um, the, we, we have seen that in killer whales, for example, they're undergoing a cultural speciation. And so culture is really important. Where you're coming from is really important because it makes you what you are today. Um, and then the last part, uh, what I learned uh, um, by studying them, so the process that uh, uh, in this process, becoming like a PhD student and uh, um, and getting my PhD, I really learned that um, we need to trust our guts. And uh, so, if you believe in your project, uh, and uh, you just need to keep believing in uh, uh, in your ideas. So, and it is important. It's not really important to um, to receive like thousand of no. Uh, because everyone receives no's, because you, you just need just one yes to keep going. So that's also something that I learned in this process. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, no, I think that that's like a great thing, especially in the field of marine science and marine mammalogy. You're, I, I think that's something that will resonate with a lot of people is getting a lot of no's before you get a yes. Um, mm-hmm. But we need people, we need retention in the field. And um, the world only benefits from having more people who study these animals. So um, I think that's really good advice. Well, thank you mm-hmm. so much for being on the podcast. Um, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'll definitely look forward well, to fun. <laughs> Yes. Thank you very much. All righty. Bye, guys.